You are listening to Black Reality Think Tank with host Dr. William Rogers on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com.
History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people. Finley Medical Clinic. We serve uninsured, underinsured, and insured individuals. Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today. You are listening to Black Reality Think Tank with host Dr. William Rogers on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Hotep and greetings, my brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Black Reality Think Tank. My name is Dr. William Rogers, and I will be your host this evening. We're so happy that you're able to join us here on the Time for an Awakening radio network. We have a very exciting and dynamic conversation uh, to have with you today. And so we are so pleased. Very, very hot day where we are here. Uh, Hope you were cool where you are and that uh, you're settling in. And as the great Oscar Brown Jr. said, brothers, and I will add, sisters, where are you? Where are you? And we are hopefully glad that you are here with us on the Black Reality Think Tank. Tonight we are going to have a discussion, uh, and we have coined our topic as In the Spirit of David Walker, the Black Reality Think Tank's appeal to African descendants living in America. And I want to just briefly indicate why uh, we chose the topic and framed it in that way, even to talk about the spirit of David Walker's appeal. I have always been heavily moved by David Walker's appeal. I have read it time and time again. I remember my first reading of it was in my undergraduate years in college, history department, and it was just a, a very entering treatise. And since that time, I have looked at it in different ways and kind of studied it from what some of our great minds and scholars have said about it. It is a very unique document, and it needs to be looked at in a way that uh, definitely embraces uh, what we are doing today and what we understand today. An appeal is a very dynamic way of making a political statement. Uh, An appeal is not a passive political theory. Uh, It is actually a very aggressive one. When you make an appeal, what you are doing is you are approaching someone and you are telling them that you are appealing uh, to their intellect, to their knowledge, to their understanding of things. And obviously it has a conclusion to it. Because if you're appealing, more than likely the person that you're appealing to 
is going to ask you, well, what do you want me to do? Well, that's what you want to hear. And at that point, you can begin to direct uh, the essence of your theory. Uh, so very clearly, David Walker's appeal is a very powerful one. But before I get into a little bit more of the explanation of his appeal, I want to do our monologue for today. And our monologue uh, comes from the pen. Uh, well, first of all, let me, let me just say, we, we are, we are gonna, we're going to look at this topic, as, first of all, as it relates uh, to today, you know, time. But anyway, our, our monologue is going to come from the pen of the great James Baldwin. And uh, it reads something like this. He says, I will state flatly that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time. They impress me as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white if I may say so, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality, which they want me to accept, is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of mine, of myself. Well then, for the sake of one's sanity, one ceases trying to make them here. If they think that things are more important than people, and they do, well, let them think so. Let them be destroyed by their things. If they think I was happy being a slave and have now redeemed by having become, and on their terms, as they think, the equal of my overseers, well, let them think so. If they think I am faltered by their generosity in allowing me to become a sharecropper in a system which I know to be criminal, and which is placed squarely on the backs of non-white people all over the world. Well, let them think, though. So let them think so. Bottom line, let the dead bury their dead. James Baldwin. And so that's where we start tonight. We start tonight with the monologue from a brilliant mind of one of our ancestors. Um, and he has uh, offered us a very strong working commitment uh, to take forward. But nevertheless, let me just quickly talk about the concept uh, of an appeal. At the time that David Walker wrote his appeal, uh, he wrote it in a time when most of America uh, was in what was known as the, the post-revolution. Uh, they had just won their right from the British, and so all over the place there were appeals being written to do all kinds of different things. So it was a, a, a powerful time. They were trying to get 
together and have a constitution. Uh, and they were trying to create a group of laws and trying to determine uh, which way they were going to run this country. Uh, and so throughout the time, there were a lot of appeals. And so David Walker simply uh, contributed one uh, to the African world. David Walker at the time was working uh, for John Rushworm. John Rushworm uh, had started a publication called Freedom's Journal, which is the first African-American paper. And the Freedom's Journal, the entire journal was an appeal. It was an appeal to African people to recognize you are living in slavery. You are in captivity. You must do something for yourself. You must not depend upon the people that held you in captivity uh, to, first of all, set you free or to treat you nice or to do anything different. Don't expect that. And so in 1829, he published his pamphlet. It was called Appeal in Four Articles, together with a preamble to the colored citizens of the world, but in particular and very expressly to those of the United States of America. And we can get more into the analytical part of it, but we won't do so tonight because we want to get into our discussion. Um, it's very interesting that he called them colored citizens in 1829. There was a reason for that. Uh, he did that. Um, and then to particularly address it uh, to, to African people living all over the world. And so he didn't just relegate that to one part. But uh, this was a major document, and um, as I said, he was working, working for John Westworm, Samuel Cornish, who had started the first black newspaper, and this was the first uh, appeal. They were appealing to what some say was a bi-directional practice. As I said, I appeal to you to do something. You receive that appeal, and then you ask me, what can I do? So tonight, that's what we're doing. We are appealing uh, to our brothers and sisters, whoever hear me in the sound of my voice. And we are asking you to look around you. And I mean, and this appeal obviously is not new. We've been doing this. Uh, it has been done uh, before and it's being done continuously. Many of our outspoken leaders are asking that of you daily. Um, but it's in the spirit of David Walker that we are we are doing this broadcast tonight. And we are asking the question in the appeal is we are saying to you, this is the reason we are asking. Something is killing black folk in America. And I say carefully, something is killing. And I'll let you answer that part and fill that gap in, but something is killing black folk in America. Now what I will do is make a few suggestions is it a generational curse doing it? Is it genocide? And don't think we've heard the generational curse uh, concept often throughout the pulpits of, of uh, black America. They're always talking about generational curse, breaking the generational curse. Well, is that what's killing us? Or is it acts of genocide, literal genocide? Is it untreated trauma? Trauma now has begun a very powerful conversation in terms of black life and healing and, and, and where we are moving? Is it trauma? 
uh, epigenetics. Epigenetics, is that what it is? It's that birth transferring of, of uh, things. PTSD, the one that Dr. Joy Drury talked to us about so much. What is it? Whatever it is, what we are saying in our appeal is black folk, wake up. Wake the heck up. Something is killing our people. Our children are in the streets of America, bleeding every day. Men are killing their women. And not only are they just killing their women, they're killing the children too. You know that. We read the paper. We see what's being said, what's being done right in our own communities. That's being done. They are dying. Something is killing. These numbers are adding up. These numbers or taking away from the possibility of a strong future for African people. This is taking away the soldiers that will build the strong community of where we are. So we've got to ask that question. You know, if we don't ask that question, uh, then we are going to be completely wiped off uh, from the course of life. I don't want that, and I'm sure you don't want that either. So tonight I've asked a a dear friend uh, that I've uh, recently embraced and we've been working on several projects together and doing some great work in our community uh, to join us in this conversation. Uh, She is a mental health professional. Her name is uh, Reverend Bonita Kirk. Uh, She is a graduate student from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, And she's going to help us explore this subject tonight as we look at what is killing black folk in America? What's doing it? Why are people responding to life the way that we see them doing it now? What is that? And I'm not saying that this is new, but it's something else going on uh, that just wasn't happening before. Uh, and, I mean, we know what the captors do. They kill us too. But, We're doing it. We're killing each other. So that's what we want to talk about tonight, and we've asked her to join us, and we hopefully hope you will join us. These are hard questions. They're not easy. They're not going to be answered in two hours. Uh, You're not going to answer them out of a textbook. (coughs) But we want to get us to thinking. I'm making an appeal to you tonight. I'm following in the tracks of David Walker. If you read David Walker's appeal, see what he was asking black folk to do. See what he was asking the black institutions who were supposed to be powerful at the time to do. Look at his critique of the black church and others. So that is what we are doing tonight. So with that, um, I'm going to go to our guest. Good evening, uh, Sister Kirk. How are you doing today? I am doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, we want to try to make this a very good discussion tonight uh, and, and ask this question. But before we begin, uh, I, I wonder if you would be just so kind to kind of tell us a little bit about your background in mental health and what you were doing and what you've been doing uh, and give us just a little bit of that before we get into the actual dialogue. Sure. Um, in the state of 
Virginia. I am called a QMHP, which is a qualified mental health professional. And um, my basic job is um, I do case management. I work with an interdisciplinary team of licensed clinical social workers, licensed professional counselors, physicians, nurses. And what we do is we, my part of what I do is work with individuals who have mental health issues. And part of my job is to create a, a continuum of care to make sure the individuals are living at the highest quality of their life that they can. Um, in my field, it's not, it's very common to have what we call comorbidity, which means that there's more than one issue at the table. There may be mental health issues, drug addiction, mental health issues, domestic violence, poverty. And so there is a, a combination of, um, for lack of a better word, ailments um, that the person is having to deal with. And I basically... Um, deal with that person in their environment, not just the psychological uh, self-talk, but understanding how in the environment is impacting the individual. So you can feel good about yourself, but if you can't pay your rent, uh, you're going to get evicted. You can feel good about yourself, but if you can't pay your phone bill, you can't communicate. So uh, it's important that I connect uh, the individuals with resources. Um, uh, important to connect the mm -hmm. person with mental health professionals, and also offer um, opportunities for the client to develop their own management system based on their experience, strength, hope of overcoming, and working on themselves. So. That's a little bit of what I do, and what I will be talking about tonight is really my experience of working boots on the ground okay, and good. seeing what's going on. <clears throat> good. Excellent. But before you get into that, I just want to ask one other thing. Now, I know you're also uh, in pursuit of a, uh, a Minister of Divinity degree, of what's called an MDiv, um, and uh, how are you going to use that in this uh, in your pursuit of mental health, will you be well? First of all, let me ask: Will you be using that in that way? I will. Okay. I will. Um, I am working on what they call a dual degree, where I'm getting my Master's of Divinity and Master's in Public Theology, which is a combination of the church's response to real issues that we're dealing with today, mm -hmm. uh, not just. Uh, doctrine or dogma or anything like that or are you saved or not saved or going to hell but like at the end of the day I can believe in God but if I can't pay my bills I'm going to be stressed out right. at the end of the day I can believe in God but if I can't get along in my relationships I'm going to raise children that are dysfunctional or I'm going to stay in dysfunction so I plan to use my knowledge of the understanding that we can have a powerful relationship with God, but at the same time, there's got to be a pragmatic piece, a realistic piece that keeps me stable while I am believing in God. So I'm hoping to be able to combine the two and, and work them together. Okay, great. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you so much for that. 
Okay, all right. Well, um, one of the things that uh, we hear a lot <clears throat> is that we are just coming from uh, a very long battle with a, a deadly disease uh, called COVID-19 and that it has wrecked havoc on a lot of things, and particularly in African-American community. And a lot of times when things happen in our community, it's double the whammy uh, that it is in other communities because of the fact of the disparities in so many things that we are counting, health care, uh, you know, food, clothing, and shelter. <clears throat> so we have to fight a little bit harder, and then that the impact of the devastation is always a little bit harder. So the question tonight is, what in the heck is that we are seeing going on in the streets of America with our people? What is, what is happening? And what is the cause and effect from your perception of this, some of the things that we are hearing, the killing of all of these children, uh, these, these terrible domestic violence cases that we are hearing, and who it's affecting and how it's being affected and what's driving people to that point. I mean, we've always had domestic violence, but I don't know. Sometimes this is, to me, it seems just a little bit more than, than normal. Um, so can you just shed a little light for us? Let's begin there. <clears throat> and then we'll get into it and maybe open up and let our audience give us a little bit of, of their perspective from that as well and, and just kind of get a real good conversation going here. But let's start it there. What are you seeing? Um, what I see is we are seeing the results of individuals and family members not being able to process pain. Um, if you don't process pain, then you're going to internalize the pain and then you're going to project the pain out. What I would like to do is um, there's a friend of mine who uh, is working on a campaign right now uh, around gun violence and dealing with what's happening with gun violence. I don't know. Um, his numbers, uh, Mr. Roan, um, 0736, is he by any chance on the line, uh, Dr. Rogers? Nope. Uh, let's see. What, say it again. He's What's done. the last numbers? Oh. I think it's 0736. There's a 0736. Uh, Mr. Roan, is that you, 804484? Yes. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, there he is. Mm -hmm. Yes. If you would, um, Mr. Roan, give us a better understanding in real plain terms what we're seeing with gun violence. I know we talked a little bit about the pain that people are not being able to process. If you would speak on that a little bit, I'd appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you first, Dr. Rogers, and thank you, Sister yes, Benita, you. for inviting me in. And this is one of uh, many efforts uh, for to clear the minds of our people, so to speak. And what we're seeing manifesting in our people is the condition that they're in, right? And so the state of mind that our people are functioning in is a state of pain, a state of trauma, a state of dysfunction, right? And that is perpetual from slavery, right? The enhanced experience of poverty, of victimization, of marginalization, and there's so many other dysfunctions, right? Health disparities. You can just name them. You can go down the list, and our communities are really in a crisis down on the ground. 
And many of our educated people, if I can use that word, many of our people who have uh, been disconnected from uh, the communities in which are um, what we call uh, impoverished uh, don't understand the true desperate situation that the mind is in. Right. And so when we look at gun violence in the community, we're really looking at a program. Right. Our our people, our young people in many of our communities are operating out of a program, a program of dysfunction. Right. And a program of pain. Right. And so how do you do it? You lash out. Right. You're you're in pain. You're in trauma. You're in dysfunction. You're in hurt. You're in poverty. And you don't have the things that many other people have and you don't have the tools or the skills necessary. But you also in survival mode. And so when you pair that together with a dysfunctional community and a a program of hate, uh, a program of self-hate that is running inside of our people. And we have to, what I call, disrupt the program. Mm-hmm. And that is my plea to disrupt the program. And we have to do that in a number of ways. We have a multifaceted approach, but it's also a myriad of problems that we face. And so we have to solve the problem in that way. So it's no one solution. There has to be multiple ways that we look at um, eradicating the issues that we face on the ground in our communities. Thank you. Um, that was really good. I'd like to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, um, in your opinion, um, there's been a lot of talk on what the problem is. Uh, and some people, I mean, just we have been just great at articulating the problem. One of the challenges that I see is that uh, one thing about our counterparts is that when they are doing experiments and um, practicing different techniques, they have a cooperation from their community that's willing to come in and join and say, hey, look, we got an idea. We need to know if this works. And they're willing to try it out. And if it doesn't work, they go back to the drawing board. And if that doesn't work, they go back to the drawing board. One of the things that I'm not seeing in our community is that effort. I hear a lot about the problem, but when it comes to, okay, I need for you to come in, you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with domestic violence, you're dealing with this, I need you to come in with this program, we got an idea, we think this will work, come in, let's see if it works. And um, my experience has been that um, our community is very sensitive to uh, critiquing. So in order to improve anything, you have to go through an evaluative process to be, by which to improve. So I don't see much on creating modalities to, by which change and disrupt this behavior that you're talking about. Do you have any opinions on why we're not seeing that in the community and why we are stuck in this perpetual conversation of what the problem is and not having a solution? Well, I think uh, the real problem is white supremacy, racism and white supremacy all day long. Uh And that is at the root of it. That is at the heart of it, which evolves into self-hatred for our people, right? But uh, self-harm and dysfunction and the opportunities that we have. And so in in many of our communities on the ground, there's, there's a level of dysfunction beyond belief. And many of our providers are uh, jaded. Many of our providers don't know how to deal with that community, right, what the real needs are. 
and they're not culturally sensitive, nor do the um, opportunities for help um, align with what is culturally sensitive or culturally relevant. And then the providers who kind of understand are siloed and they don't have the resources or they don't have the support that they need to provide those resources and those supports properly. And so you get back again to that cycle of dysfunction that continues to manifest itself in the lives of many people who live in impoverished or low-income communities. And there is no such thing as bootstraps. If you don't have boots and you don't have straps, what do you have? And so I think, again, the belief system, you have to be there to understand. You have to see it. You have to be a part of it. And people who are not in those communities or don't understand those communities or who've been in those communities 30 or 40 years ago don't know what it's like right now mm-hmm. at all. Dr. Rogers, do you have anything you'd like to <clears throat> Very clearly, that was extremely powerful analysis uh, because I, as he was talking, as the both of you are talking, I, I'm, I was beginning to visualize situations and cases that I know and, and looking at, you know, how they have moved forward and the damage that they have done. And it, like you said, it just seems like nobody is paying attention. And I mean, it is, a, it is hurting the community. And, and that's why I, I programmed our announcement tonight the way I did, uh, because it is, you, can, you can see that it is hurting our community. And you can, and you can see that. You know, but somehow or the other, we still have not found a way, as you asked, uh, Mr. Rowan, uh, to come together and create those things that can uh, make a difference. You know, because basically, I know that a lot of the answers have been things like medication and and some of those ridiculous ideas. Even with our children, as you remember, uh, in schools, kids will be going back to school in a couple of days. And I know that's going to be catastrophic because they have not had a chance to recoup and and uh, sort of recap from this COVID and from some of the things. Uh, so the educational process is going to be very well damaged. And uh, now they're talking about the only thing I hear on the news, <clears throat> the news is uh, they've got uh, body cams, uh, full body scams. Uh, this is the solution to all of that. And that they've got this, and they're going to ask volunteers to come in and walk the hallways, you know, and I just know that's going to be catastrophic. So I guess uh, whose responsibility then is it in the community to sit down and draw up this plan? Because obviously whoever is that individual has to have some knowledge of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so whose responsibility is that? So that's like, I like to ask that to both of you. Um, I, I, I want to kind of throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in that, in, in that the reality is that black problems are black dollars. I want you to think about something. Black okay. people get educated to deal with black problems. Black problems create money in this system. There is no incentive to solve the problem. It is a lot of black professionals' livelihood, the problem. I'll give you a perfect example. I, I won't call the city, but I was working for a district attorney's office, 
And um, there was a program that was dealing with um, truancy. And I got an email that truancy was actually going down and they were going to lose their funding because they were actually solving the problem. We had joined with them, assisted them, and were bumping up the numbers. So what they decided to do was say, you know what, we don't want your help anymore because the numbers are getting too good and we're going to lose our funding. So the reality is is that the system feeds on itself. It's not really trying to find the solution. And the black professionals that go in and work with the community that Mr. Rohn was talking about don't live in the community. Their children don't go to school with those children. They don't go to church with the community that they serve. And so you have black professionals going in that have a livelihood to basically go in and deal with this community, but there's really no incentive to solve the problem because we would all work our way out of a job. And so I just want to kind of throw that in there a little bit. No, um, I understand. Mr. Rowe, do you have any? Do you have anything that you would like to say about that? Yeah, I think you're exactly right, and I want to answer Dr. Rogers' question as well. But it, it's a game, right? It's just it's another higher level modern day form of slavery right it's an exchange right and so the exchange is we're going to provide services that won't work that won't help people in exchange for resources and so all of these nonprofits are set up many of them are set up to appear as if they're doing great work but the problem will persist because we have been solving the same problems for 50 years and nothing has changed. It actually has gotten worse. Worse. And although many of us have navigated to uh, rural or urban areas, right, or into the counties in many areas, it's still the same thing inside of the household. And so many of our, uh, I would say, many of our people who have assimilated are attached to their paycheck, right? And so they're just going to do their job. They'll, they'll do the bare minimum because they're in survival mode as well because right. they want to keep right. those houses and they want to keep those cars and they want to keep the American dream going. Now, to answer your question, Dr. Rogers, briefly, it is all of our problems, right? Yes. Again, it's, it's multi-tiered, multi-faceted. So we need everybody, all hands on deck. We need our educated, we need our highly educated to like this think tank, right? Individuals who can sit down and really think about uh, how to resolve issues, but also individuals who are really interested in looking at how to resolve issues ourselves. For example, something simple as if we know, based on the era that you've grown up in, home training. Yes. Home training requires you to train your children at home and not uh, involve the school system in doing that. It's not the school system's job to train your children how to conduct themselves. So that goes into parenting, right? right? Who's teaching our parents how to parent? That's our job. Our job is to teach our children how to regulate themselves, right? Not medicate themselves, regulate themselves. And you don't have to be punitive or abusive. It's development. It's training. It's providing them with the tools necessary so when they go to school, they're prepared to learn. And they're equipped to learn, and they're equipped to compete. That's our job at every level. Our HBCUs, 
need to do a better job of integrating their knowledge and their intelligence and their skills into the community. Yes. Right? Our our educated elite need to get involved. Our middle class Americans need to get involved. And we have to come back to our communities. And I think lastly, Dr. Rogers and Sister Benita, it is integration, right? At the core of it that has eroded the fabric of many of our communities where most of individuals who do visit just go to come in to visit church or for work and then they're out, they're gone. And that's okay, but our people need help. There's a community that has been left behind right. and we need to go and recapture our community. Exactly. You know, I had thought about, um, again, as you're talking and I'm, I'm thinking as we're rolling, um, and I was thinking, I said, well, there's got to be a best practice somewhere. Uh, something that we can look at, and uh, I, and I have to go back to our ancestors. And, and again, you know, the choice that I looked at for tonight is looking at the work of David Walker. Uh, uh, what Walker did in his appeal is he went after those institutions that you just talked about, Mr. Rowan. He went after those, and um, he critiqued the black church. Uh, he critiqued the black educators. And if you look at some of our other um, uh, thinkers and scholars like Carter G. Woodson, he did the same thing in the miseducation of the Negro. He went after the institutions and the, and the ideologies that were not being done that he thought should have been done. And so he just didn't criticize. He was actually telling them what they can do and how they can help make things better and uh, improve the lot that you know we are, we are trying to address uh, here. So so and and in some cases their appeal to them was was listened, you know, because they were in positions where they could do it. As I said, David Walker was writing for the only black newspaper in the country. So he could reach the AME. And the AME made a quick change and uh, elevated their educational process uh, and elevate uh, educating black children. The AME was one of the first to make that move. And they were doing that because of the, of the critique that was coming uh, from, from, like you said, people that were thinkers, people that would sit down and say, look, this is what we've got to do. So let me ask this, among other cultures, you know, and I know as we look at particularly Native Americans, I was just looking at some of the stories the other day about this uh, they're going after these, uh, uh, the Pope ended up going to Canada to speak to the uh, Native Americans up in Edmonton and so forth. And that, that was a joke because the Catholic Church tried to educate them in the way that they did it. And it was obviously a horror story and what was done. So he had to go up there and try to make some apology. But in other cultures, is there an example where um, there were challenges and like of this nature, and then uh, there was a way that they do it other than outside of war. I know with war you can do it, like Russia is doing now. Uh, they're changing. They're making changes to their uh, system. Uh, but So is there, is there an example of that? Hmm. That's a good question, Dr. Rogers. Um, I think you see it in the um, immigrant communities. Okay, okay. But what they have intact is 
they have their culture intact, they have their language intact, they have their religion intact, they have their traditions intact, which give them a modality to join around and solve their problems. So they may say, well, we have a tradition in our culture that when this happens, we do this, and when this happens, we do that. Our culture is piecemealed and at best is reactive, not responsive. Okay. Our diet is reactive. Yes, it you is. know, how we communicate is reactive. So I think other cultures that come in that have challenges, they have that glue by which to offset and deal with adversities, and I and I think that's the challenge we don't have. We don't have that in that. Exactly, exactly. But we do have some best practices of that we can go back and look at. Like for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. I was thinking about this today, and uh, how it was done, even though it wasn't necessarily a. You, and, you, and the, you, you're breaking up, Dr. Rogers. We didn't hear anything you said. You're oh, okay. Up. I'm sorry. I was saying that I was thinking today uh, about some best practices that we had, or we had used, that did help in some way, um, were examples of at least of your moja coming together and doing something. It may not have been the best one, like, for instance, in terms of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. The, the whole initiative of that was a community initiative, even right down to paying uh, the NAACP and the lawyers that they pulled together to file suit yep. against uh, those schools. This was a community effort to do that. Charles Hamilton Houston um, and his crew of lawyers were were you know you know the, the story that the NAACP were supposed to pay for it, but they didn't. They had to get some monies from other places. A lot of them were anonymous donations. From what I've seen in uh, some of my research and what I've looked at, one of the heavy donors uh, to the NAACP case was Matter C.J. Walker. I, I haven't totally confirmed it, but it is she was very active in donating for that lawsuit. Now, obviously, Brown didn't do what you know we were thinking that we wanted to do, but but it's a it, it was an, an effort that came together with the community to fight. And um, I'm want, I'm just saying, why can't we do that now to fight for resources to do some of the things that you've talked about here in mental health, things that we need, things that that's not there that needs to be there in order to help. Uh, these families and some of the horrible things and horrible stories that we see going on in terms of domestic violence and it's almost insanity at gross levels. Um, the black psychologists, what about them? Where are the black psychologists? Black, and, I, and I know some, so I know that they, they are very heavily uh, engaged in wanting to do something. But again, like you said, I, it's, it's an issue. So what about that? What well, do you think? I, I think one of the challenges, uh, Dr. Rogers, is that the in the past, were in our past, the black community was monolithic in that if you were black, it didn't matter if you were a doctor, a lawyer, right, right. Uh, 
you were going to experience discrimination. And so because of that, we had that to join around. Well, it's no longer like that anymore. Because of integration, there are black communities. There's not a black community. Right. There are different socioeconomic levels. You've got Yes, you're right about um, you've got that, the wealthy blacks now that you know don't want to have anything to do if you don't have a pedigree. You have your um, middle class blacks, your upper middle class blacks, your lower. I mean, so everybody's on different pages, and the outcome is the further away that you get from being black, the more money you make and the more uh, statue. Um, that you have in the community. So we don't have that commonality that we're in this together. You know, you're, you're that kind of black or you're that kind of black. You know, we've got that schism now. And so it's very hard for us. What do we unite around? Right. But our trauma. Exactly, exactly. Okay, that's a good point. That's, that's a think tank discussion, no doubt, to how to, how to work that, you know, what, you know, it has to be worked, I think, and I think it can be worked in some way. Uh, let me go to some of our audience members, if you don't mind. Uh, let's see what some of they they have to say, maybe some questions. Uh, Brother Lush, how you doing tonight? Brother Lush, 334-414, Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. Brother Lush, are you there? Okay. Brother. Hello, hello. Hey, yes, I'm, I'm yes. sorry, I'm sorry. I, I had to step away from the phone for a moment. Okay. Um, uh, thank you for taking my call. And, and my question is pretty pretty basic right now because I want to listen to what other people have to say. Okay. Uh, Reverend Kirk, Reverend Kirk and Mr. Rome, can you speak on the possibility that we as black people in the 21st century have developed a narcissistic personality disorder and we really don't realize we're, we're doing it? <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to let Brother Roan take that one first. You want to go, uh, Brother Roan, on that one? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tiptoe around that. I think it's yes and no, right? But I think what it, what we have integrated into a class system, right? And many of us uh, unknowingly have joined the uh, American philosophy to become full-bred, 100% uh, American uh, citizens. Nothing wrong with that. But I think we also have to really look at um, economics, right, and understanding the, the systems that we have in this country and how many of our people don't know how to navigate those systems, don't know how to navigate the economic system or the political system that uh, serves as traps for many of our people. And so we have to be able to do a better job of educating our people on the system dynamics to navigate uh, around some of those things that continue to plague us, like systemic uh, poverty, for example, uh, for example, uh, mass incarceration, which many of our uh, students and our young people are feeding into the criminal justice system because of poverty. And so if we understand group economics, right, and Dr. Rogers, you mentioned um, that some cultures are doing that, but culture is the important piece, and we have an adaptive culture, and we have to be able to have firm 
uh, cultural boundaries and cultural systems that really help our people understand how to navigate this system and boundaries in which we can operate in. That bring us back to uh, some of the moral values we used to have. And lastly, um, systems like that of Noble Drew Ali, uh, right. the things that Marcus right. Garvey was talking about, right. Elijah Muhammad, those tools that they have in the Nation of Islam, for example, and in the uh, Marcus Garvey movement again, and those movements that really had us to have pride in ourselves and to really understand the importance of family and community unity is what we need to get back to. Right. I definitely agree uh, um, I would like to say that I think the Thanks. brother is spot on about narcissism. Uh, the psychological, American Psychological Association, the DS. I think we're at the DSM-5 now. Uh, it's very narcissistic. The whole system is narcissistic. It's all about me, myself, and I. It's not community-driven um, uh, whatsoever. But I want to do a pushback on poverty because being poor doesn't make you a criminal. Being poor... If, if I don't have a pair of tennis shoes that cost $200, poverty doesn't make me steal and kill to get the tennis shoes. We have a moral compass issue going on here. That does not, just because I'm poor doesn't mean I have to be a thief. Just because I'm poor doesn't mean that I have to beat up somebody. We are now being impacted by a narcissistic system yes, that says yes. your identity is tied up now in a tennis shoe. Your identity is tied up in your clothes. Who is telling our children that they are nothing because they don't have Jordan tennis shoes on? Right. Who is telling our children that they are nothing because they don't have the latest jeans? And so we have tied our identities what you're saying into this narcissistic model that is based on materialism. Black people have been poor since black people have been in this country, and we were not exhibiting this type of behavior. So the, I'll end with this. Part of the narrative now is I'm going to blame it on poverty, which is convenient in a capitalistic system, which creates more people saying, like the rap community say, if it don't make money, it don't make sense. And so you've got this whole mm -hmm. paradigm shift in the thinking of what I am worth in a capitalistic system. And in a capitalistic system, what goes is if there's a price, it can be bought. And so I think you're spot on that we have developed this narcissism, but this narcissism is coming from the dominant culture, and now they are dictating back to us, and we are regurgitating this. That's why I want to push back on that, because poverty doesn't make me a thief. Poverty doesn't make me a murderer. Poverty doesn't make me mean. Poverty, now crime... Drug addiction will make me uh, some will make me an animal. So if I dump a bunch of drugs in a poverty-stricken environment where people are going to use it for escapism, then that's a whole other dynamic. But that's not just about poverty. Right, right. <clears throat> like the, 
Okay, Brother Herbie, how you doing tonight? Good evening, Dr. Rodgers, and good evening to your guests. Good evening. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say is something I noticed that in the 60s, 70s, and stuff, you had one household, you had one telephone in the household, and that was used for communication. Everybody used the same phone. Right. Now, in the age of cell phones, a cell phone has made, instead of a family of four, you got four individuals. That's true. Because that cell phone belongs to an individual that person downloads the apps that they want, they, they communicate with, and they talk to their apps and they things that they want to talk to, and they don't discuss it with nobody else. They make their decisions so on the stuff that they've learned in the particular apps that they put on their phone and who they're communicating with. I can tell you right now, most of us adults do not know what apps are on our children's phone. Okay. And that takes away the parental influence because you don't even know what your child is thinking. That's right. No one listening to. And, or listening to. And like poverty doesn't make you a, a criminal, but a little example I like to give is, if you have a classroom full of children, uh, say 10 year old, and every day at recess, you give all the children three cookies and some milk, except for one child. You don't give him nothing. He doesn't get any cookies and he doesn't get any milk and he doesn't know why. After a certain amount of time, that child is going to hurt somebody. True. That resentment of why am I isolated? Why am I? Why can't I have what they have? And so those other little children, they're not going to hurt the teacher that didn't give them. But on their way home from school, some of them kids in their class are going to have a problem. I love your example. I have a question for you because I, I like your example. Is the cookies, the example that you're giving about if you're hungry, and I say, okay, we have some rice and beans, and you say, I don't want rice and beans. So now it's not about whether or not you can eat. It's about, well, that ain't what everybody else is eating. And so the schism that's been put in the mix is that it's not about satisfying the want. It's the commercial industry has decided and programmed people on, well, the kids are like, I don't want an Android. I want an iPhone. It doesn't matter. You got a phone. But the kids will make fun of one another and say, oh, you got a government phone. Oh, you got an Android. 
I've got an iPhone. They all communicate. But the division comes from social media and the outer world that creates the schism. You have a phone to call on. What's the problem? And so it's the answer to the problem that the system has said, oh, but you know what? If you're hungry and your mom can't give you steak, then your mom is a low life. It doesn't matter that your mom has provided food for you to eat, but you don't have the kind of food that we approve of. And so that, when you get into that, then it gets really complicated because now it's really not about solving the problem of hunger. It's about, well, you're not eating what the system says you need to eat. Or it doesn't matter that as a single-parent mom, I make sure that my child has clean clothes and tennis shoes, but they're not Jordan. They're not, um, uh, I'm going to age myself here, Gloria Vanderbilt. I can't think of um, a FUBU that, you know, that's something more uh, up to date. So it doesn't matter that I come in and say, hey, baby, you got clean clothes, you got clean shoes, you got food in your stomach. Oh, this old raggedy stuff. Oh, you expect for me to wear this? So you've got that kind of peer pressure that eradicates everything that you're trying to teach at home about being a responsible individual. And the system comes in and says, you know what, it ain't good enough that your mom works for a living. She works for McDonald's. It's not good enough that she's an honest, hardworking person. She only makes just so much money. So I understand what you're saying, and I hope that my example gives you an idea of what I'm talking about along that. And, you know, I really think it goes back to that narcissism thing. What I was trying to say, kind of what I was trying to say is that the media constantly bombards you with what you don't have. This this is out here, but you can't have it. This is out here, but you don't have it. But there's a way that you can get it. Yes. There's a way that you can get it. And if you come from a family where you have a, a, a parent that's providing for you and not exactly what you want as opposed to a dysfunctional family that you don't have hardly anything and you're out there trying to get it for yourself. Okay. You know, um, you. I was thinking, you know, that, that narcissism issue is really at work there and then obviously also the peer pressure uh, because like for instance Jordans and all of these these high priced shoes most of the coaching to buy that comes from peers uh, your peers do that uh, it's, I don't think it's necessarily Michael Jordan um, your peers um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's how that is structured because I remember w- working with a group of uh, elementary school boys and we were trying to talk to them about sagging their pants and why they shouldn't do that and what, what that means and the language of sagging and so forth and so on a couple of the kids told me shoot man that's what the girls like I do it because the girls like it mm-hmm. I said them girls don't like that they said yes they do and so I decided to ask about 10 of them. What did they think of boys that sag? And uh, they said, I love it. 
If you don't sag, that means he ain't a man. Wow. Wow. That's right. So that's who was pushing the sagging. The girls. Like that's it. what I was talking about, about the apps on your phone, the TikTok, the Facebook, the Instagram, all these things that's telling you what you should be doing. Right. Right. That's it. Okay, let me go over here to uh, Mr. Scott. Uh, he ran a program uh, in Milwaukee Public Schools for Opportunities Industrial Centers uh, for about five, six years. And, you know, he was able to witness some things firsthand and uh, even was able to acquire funding to try to change some of that narrative. Uh, Mr. Scott, you want to say anything in terms of this argument that you learned from your experience? Yes, um, and also I, I like to say when I, when I uh, transitioned from Wisconsin from Milwaukee to to Arizona, um, picked up a job and I was a part of a clinical team, and I, I worked that job for approximately four years or so. So and and I worked directly with the SMI population, and uh, the. Um, the point that's been, well, the, the, the gentleman said, he, he answered it in two ways as it relates to uh, the, the question about uh, narcissism, you know, uh, this whole thing about being narcissistic. Uh, that's all tied in with classes, you know. So uh, we have certain classes of people, and certain classes of people are going to wear this, they're going to wear that, and, and some of us, we live above our means, and, and we go out and we get our children things that we really don't have the money to buy so they can keep up with us as uh, the guest days of peer pressure and such. Um, a lot of that, you know, I mean, as, as relates to the children um, and, and the mentors, as the, when, we, when we were doing the mentoring piece, the, you developed the curriculum um, because we had a lot of mentors, but you discovered that these mentors needed to be trained. So you developed a, a curriculum that was uh, training the trainer, you know, so we could have better equipped mentors, you know, because there's 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 a lot of situations uh, that we have where there's where a lot of parents are not, they don't understand parenting as, as, as it relates to how children should really be raised. A lot of mentors didn't really understand how to mentor children because they didn't, they would date that the compassion was there, but to really communicate in theory, you know, and to really connect and to help this child to grow up and be a better, more productive person um, was, it was a big help through the curriculum that you developed, but the compassion was there and, and the help was there. And as it relates to going into those schools, We've seen a lot of things. I mean, so many things. And, and I will never forget one teacher said, the only help for these children is prison. You know, and, and shortly after that, we took 141 of them out on a, on a trip for two days and one night and came back with not one problem, not one. You know, and they were just devastated with the fact that, that we could do something like that. There were so many different things that, that we encountered, we came in contact with. It was, right. You know, right. so, many, so many women raising children, particularly boys, by themselves. 
you know, and trying to teach them the things that a man should be teaching them, um, which they couldn't. They couldn't, but they did the best they could, and you have to give them the credit for doing that, you know. And um, there was always, like like I said, uh, in, in, the, in the conversation we had uh, on, a, on a show a few, 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 maybe a few weeks or a month or so back, um, the, 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 the economic always there, you know, the hardship. You know, a lot of families are in, in a serious hardship as it relates to income, you know. Um, and a lot of children want to go to school wearing all these different type clothes. And, and this whole thing about sagging and all that type of stuff, these are, these are bad trends. These are not teaching children how to grow up in to, uh, particularly men how to grow up and be strong productive uh-huh. men and, and and young young ladies you know i mean um i i i've seen a situation just recently this lady was a bona fide professional i mean as relates to her career but she dressed up to go out to an event and to me i couldn't tell the difference between her and a prostitute but but again, still then again, you have these type of people who are raising our children today. It, it, it's, it's the same as when you did that in service right there at Pierce Street Elementary School, and, and you show them, you show them, all those teachers, all those things that look at the end of the day, this is what you let your children go home to. Right. And they've seen all of the women dropping like it's hot and. And some of them have hardly no clothes on and this, that, and, and some of them really didn't want to accept that. But, you know, that that's the fact. That is the fact of the, of the matter. That's the reality of that that we live in. This, right. this is what your children go home to after you try to educate them and teach them all these different things based on this white Anglo-Saxon curriculum that you you're trying to shove down their thoughts every day. But anyway, what you're trying to teach them, after you let them go, this is what they're going home to. Same, same concept as the gentleman talking about the apps. It's just, it's just more of it now. So so it's not just television. It's, 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 it's social media is just it's everywhere. Everything is just out there. And we have to pay more attention to that and try to have more control of that. But they are definitely definitely out there learning a lot from from what's on their phones and what's going on on the television and I just and, and, and we have to be better parents better mentors uh, better communicators with our youth and, and that's a hard thing to do in today's society so Chad, that's my little two cents that I like to throw in, throw in there but uh, the conversation is very helpful it's very helpful thank you Reverend Kirk uh Brother Rowan, anything you want to add to that? Um, I would like to say um, part of what is being said now in a capitalistic society, you need resources now to do that kind of oversee with your children. Uh, back in the day when we had the village, if Ms. Johnson saw your child doing something, by the time you got home, Ms. Johnson, Mr. Roto, and everybody else knew it, and and there was a system by which there could be some accountability. Yes. But with us being so isolated now and the, and, the, and the devices that our kids now, it takes money. There's apps that parents can get that can 
keep up with what their children are doing, but it costs money. Right. Um, there's programs that will let you know. You can see your child's text messages. You can see their history on their website, but it costs money. And so one of the things that was dealt with in the pandemic when they were giving out um, uh, note Chromebooks and giving them um, these uh, uh, hotspots, what they were dealing with, the parents were using the children's hotspots to look up pornography. The parents didn't know how to use the Chromebooks. The kids did. I mean, so there's there's this also what we call this digital divide that's happening. And so the digital divide means that in your lower socioeconomic communities, the kids can navigate the, the electronics better than the parents. Yes. The higher you get up in the socioeconomics, they have resources by which to counteract that. So it's like if you're at work and now you're at work, your child is at home because of the pandemic, they have access to the Internet for 24-7 while you're at work and you don't know how to put in, in controls to control that because you don't know how to operate the computer. Right. So it's not that the parents don't care. Nobody's coming in and saying, like Brother Rome was saying, are we going to offer classes to show parents how to navigate their children's usage on these new Chromebooks that we just dumped into the house, gave them access to the internet 24-7 and the parents don't even know how to work the devices. Now the kids, I have a friend of mine, I'll end with this, she's a school teacher. They got to the point they had to take the Chromebooks from the kids because the kids were at school looking at pornography in class. Mm. And so this is this is what we're dealing with now, but these things can be counteracted if you got resources. But when you don't have money and you're working all the time, then your child is left exposed to a lot of things. And like the brother was saying about how kids are dressing, I mean, they're getting that from Hollywood, you know, the dressing thing. Um, so... It's it's really it's not that the parents don't care anymore. They literally just don't have the resources or the knowledge to regulate their children's usage of these electric right. of these electronics. And the kids got to have them now to go to school. Right. Can, can I say one thing? Can I say one thing as it relates to that uh, mm-hmm. piece about regulating the technology, Doctor Rogers? Uh, go right um, there, there, there are different mechanisms that you can have for free to regulate your, your child's phone and other different aspects of technology, you know, but these kids know, they know when you, uh, when you, when you have put um, a monitor or whatever it is on their phone, they know when you are watching or looking or they, they know and they, and, and they will switch to another phone, some type of way or another and do the things they need to do and continue using their phone on a daily basis or doing whatever it is that they do uh, to make you think they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. I, I, the, GPS, uh, G, the GPS is on it, everything, follow them and all that. A lot of them will come home and talk about that. You know, uh, we could have did that with, 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 with Jane, but we didn't do it. We're going we're gonna to trust. We're going to trust 
you are going to do the right thing. And then that's what we did, you know. Okay. But they know. They know when you when you have that, that app or whatever it is that you can put it on their phone. So a lot, of, a lot of them know. A lot of them do know. I agree. I agree. Okay, let me uh, go over, you know, our program today. One of the things that we said that we were appealing to is asking our people to wake up, look at your environment around you, look at some of the things that we are talking about right now, realize that that's what's going on, make some changes in your own world to do that. And the, the, the brother that I want to call on now has a program that he started years ago called Wake Up Program. And uh, he has been very active in uh, mental health with young men, children, you know, youth in the public schools and uh, in the community. So let's bring him on and see what he has to add to this conversation. Uh, Brother Watkins, how you doing tonight? Peace and blessing, Baba. How you doing this evening? Doing great. Doing great. All right. I want to send the greetings out to the family. Um, it's always a pleasure to be amongst y'all um, getting this getting this knowledge. Um, as I'm listening um, to the conversation, um, I think there we we have to get to a place where we are uh, being more intentional and deliberate in, in the conversation. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is why do we even have to put this technology in our children's hands at these critical stages of their development? Um, there, there's a reality to the, the science of, of social deviant behavior. And, and, and we at some point have to realize we have to start protecting our children's um, um, spiritual, psychological, and biological development at these critical stages of their development. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so, so as we have this conversation, there's an ownership that we have to take as it relates to how our children are going to be socialized moving forward in this society that has lost its moral compass. Very good point. So, so, so I'm just saying um, we all are aware of Amos Wilson's book, um, Awakening the Genius of, of Black and African Children. We, we are aware of his book of the Black Developmental Psychology of Children. So, so at some point, we have to take ownership of not allowing our children to be exposed to this technology before they get to their adolescent stage. Be because the brain is developing at a pace or at a rate where it needs to be nurtured and protected so that the children will be able to be able to critically analyze information be able to critically analyze the environmental and social toxic environment that they're living in. So, so, so there's a responsibility that we have to protect our children at these critical stages of their human development. And, and even the reality of those who are creating this technology, they don't even allow their children to engage with the technology. And so they get past a certain level of, I mean, at a critical stage of their development. Mm -hmm. so, so, so once again, so even in the conversation that we have in, uh, uh, there's, uh, it's not that the parents, it, it, it's a reality that the parents have to be educated to, but there's reality to, if we're saying that finances or school is this, 
is putting this stuff in our children's hands. At some point, we have to take ownership and say, this is not what our, my child or our children are going to be exposed to at this critical stage of the development. So, so that's, that's what I would add to that. And the reality, once again, when we talk about social deviant behavior or the social engineering of behavior, we have to realize that the, the, the science of, of creating these environmental and social toxic conditions that our people live in is designed for a purpose. Right. right. And, and we know that. It's, it's not like we don't know, but there's a reality to the ownership that we have to take to protect our children and ourselves from this madness. And you're right. You're right. And you know, it's so interesting because um, these ideas and thoughts were being predicted uh, years ago. There was a, uh, he was, I think he was a sociologist. His name was Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called Medium is the Message. And, mm. he, and he said that this was going to happen. Right. And right. he talked about it in detail uh, and that uh, because of this instant age that it was developing, that you're going to see these things being created to help. Uh, they were going to create microwaves that can cook food in two minutes. But at the same time, it was going to kill you. But at least you'll be able to go to work, work late, get a couple of hours of overtime, run home, and pop the dinner in the microwave right. and feed right. the family, you know. Uh, and, 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 Baba, even the science of what the phone does when we – and a lot of us, like I said, I don't hold the phone up to my head for long periods of time. But even the frequency or the wave frequency that comes that comes from the phone, the damage that it's causing yes, to the yes, brain. Yes, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Yes, so, yeah, so, they, so, they, so, they said it did a lot of damage to Johnny Cochran. Right, right. But that's you see. But there's a science to microwave warfare. Right. That that, that these Europeans have a, a, it's a. They can send a frequency to your brain to cause you to have an aneurysm. Right. And that's what they did to Johnny Cochran. That's what they did to Brother Khalid Muhammad. Right. They can send a frequency into your house that causes your brain or causes you to have an aneurysm, y'all. That's true. So, yeah. so, so as we had this conversation, there's a reality to the people that we live amongst and the things that they are doing that was we know about it, but we have historical amnesia. As, as a group of people. And so that's why we were saying, we, we, wake up, <laughs> black folk. Right. That, that, that was the reason I called my agency with a wake-up program. Right. We, we, we historically illiterate, and we have historical, we are historically, there's, a, there's an amnesia that we have that we refuse to tap into or continue to move the frequency of what our African scholars were moving. Right. We're not having a new conversation. Our African scholars, brothers and sisters, I mean, Aisha Hillard, um, uh, Marumba Ani, right. I mean, I can call, hey, we all know their names. Amos Wilson, but they was all, they, Bobby they Wright. They information out there for us already. Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. 
So, uh, so that's what I would say, Bob. Once that's again, good. it's always a pleasure. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you, man. Uh, hold on with us for a while. Don't don't leave right this man. We don't have too much longer anyway. Let me ask uh, Brother Griffin. Uh, you know, Brother Griffin, you any comments? You know, you want to make? Up, Dr. Roger. Uh, uh, Brother Griffin, uh, let me. Uh, I'm still breaking up now. Maybe yeah, internet. So. Okay, Brother Griffin. Um, any comments, maybe along this line? Uh, I know you have some experience in some of this that you might want to add to this conversation, Brother Otis Griffin. Okay, all right. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to see you. And see you in a while. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us tonight, um, Brother Pew. How you doing down in Louisiana? How you been, my friend? Yes, Dr. Rogers. Uh, hello. Uh, good. I've been, I've been pretty good. Great, great. What are your thoughts? Any thoughts in down this discussion? Well, the only the only thing I can say is that um, I think uh, everyone realizes that uh, raising children uh, is a community uh, level event, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so um, so it seems to me that whatever you're going to do, it's going to require the cooperation of other adults, and so it seems that the priority ought to be finding other adults that you can, um, you can form coalitions with to, uh, so that y'all can operate, you know, uh, together. I know that, um, uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, people, um, talk about, uh, understand knowing the, um, knowing the parents of your children's friends and, you know, and so on. So, so right, that's the only right, thing. Right. Right. Okay. And you know what, uh, uh, Pew, Mr. Pew, uh, a lot of that is not happening today. As uh, to where you 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 might see your child may come home with someone, and you meet that child, and you may ne- you may never meet their parents. Um, I mean, I don't operate like that, but I see a lot of that going on today, and it's just like, um, you know, it's, it's like it's, it just doesn't. I don't. I don't. I don't think that's good, you know. Uh, I think it, you know, if your, your child is hanging out with a certain someone or just children, what have you, should know their parents and they should know you. You know, you should know just how these children, where they come from, who they are, who their parents are, and they should know exactly who you are. And a lot of that is not is not happening today, uh, like it used to do. Yes. It's, it's not. It's not. It's not as prevalent as it used to. Well, well, one of the things I think is that it's just like hairstyles. That you know, um, I I uh, was listening to a program the other day, and the woman she made the point that uh, she was talking about you know people doing well for themselves personally, and she was saying that you know she was interested in um, in establishing the standard that people would ask themselves not not how well am I doing, but what have I done for my people? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a fashion. That's a style that, you know, it kind of went out of style uh, in the, in the seventies, uh, but uh, that's a style to be brought back. Well, similarly, uh, the ideal of these, uh, uh, you know, parents uh, operating as individuals, uh, you know, that's a style and that needs to go out of fashion. And so, you know, so it's just a matter of, of you, you as a parent realizing that you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You need the cooperation 
of other parents and right, so right. uh you need to make a you need to find a way to you know to get together so that y'all can function as a group well that's that's what should that's what shouldn't go out that to me that's not a stylistic thing you know it, it should it shouldn't go out of style you know the village con- concept should should continue to go on and on and on and on but it is broken down and it's not what it used to be you know uh I mean, it's just so many other components, like we talked about social media and all those different things. As parents, we we have to, you know, engage that and understand that with children. But in terms of us to continue to work together with our our youth as adults and them being children, I think that, that to me, that's, that's not a stylistic thing. That's just the way... Oh, um, Brother Phil, no, no, I I didn't mean that it was a style. What I meant was that you had said that that's not happening now, and I'm saying that the methodology that you use to reintroduce it is the same methodology that's used to reintroduce a style that people are, you know, we're not sagging pants, and then all of a sudden they're sagging pants. That's a style. That was somebody, somebody introduced that. Well, similarly... If you want, if you want uh, people uh, to return to the business of interacting with other adults, um, the uh, parents of, of your friends, uh, uh, your children's friends, then that you know you use the same method, you know, by you know just you know uh, establishing the people that hey, you think that this might be a good thing for us to do. Well, I stand corrected. Okay, I got you on that. But I didn't generalize that statement. Though. I didn't generalize. I didn't say it, you know, totally. It was all the way out. I said to a great degree it's not. It's not as prevalent. Okay, Reverend Kirk, did you have something you want to add? Yes, I would like to say when you have a competent individual, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't go on. One of the things that kids, the reason why kids cut up in school, they can't read, they can't do the, they can't do the lesson. And so what am I going to do? Am I going to let you know I can't do the lesson or I'm going to cut up and act a fool? And so when you are competent, there's a whole bunch of nonsense that you're not involved in. But now if you're competent, our kids around here telling you acting right. Yeah, you thank yeah. you, why? I mean, we got that kind of craziness going on. So yeah. if, if if we have individuals that are competent in what they do, what would happen if our kids in the hood could code? What kind of games would our kids be creating if they could code? But because of the digital divide, and getting left behind further and further and further, your self-esteem is affected because now I graduate from a a school in the hood. I'm not going to be competitive with someone that graduated from private school. My GPA at a a hood school ain't going to mean the same as somebody that's in upper middle class um, uh, uh, high school diploma. And so our kids recognize they can't compete. So when you can't compete, you're going to be silly. And so we have to create opportunities um, for our kids to be competent. But a lot of our jobs, we are right now in that in that chasm where we move from the agriculture to the industrial age 
We are mm-hmm. now moving from the industrial age to high tech. Most African American jobs are in social services. We are getting ready to move out of that into a high tech now, even in social services. You got to be able to work certain programs and know certain things. And so, in white school, it's it's a it's reading, arithmetic, and coding. We are our kids. Seventy percent of black children cannot read on the fourth grade level. Lord percent. We are losing the war with reading, and our, so our kids cannot learn new information. They can't assimilate new information. They can't do. They they can't use that. Um, I don't know who has the background noise going on, but they're not able to. Um, I'll give you. A, I'll leave you with this example. In computer science, what we're finding out in historical black colleges, a lot of our computer science majors are just being introduced to coding maybe a couple of years ago. They get into a, a, a computer science uh, degree plan at HBCU, and then they go intern at Google. They sit next to kids that have been in ninja computer camps since they were eight. Okay, it ain't that they not as smart, they haven't been exposed. Yep. So yep. now your confidence level, you you think, oh man, I'm a computer science major, I'm going to go to Google, and you sit next to a kid that's been coding since he was 10. You learned how to code two years ago. There's going to be some, there's going to be some competency issues there. Not because of stupidity, but lack of exposure. So our kids, as we move in from this um, uh, uh, industrial age to high tech, black people are getting left behind in droves because our jobs are not in tech. We're either uh, social services, we're clerical, we're, and it's nothing, I'm not saying anything wrong because a good job is a good job. I'm just saying these are some of the challenges that our kids are facing and so when they go sit with their counterparts and they're not as competent or as adequate they're gonna they're gonna uh, uh, dismiss themselves from that and they're gonna create a culture of their own that they can feel comfortable in and that's just human survival and I can understand that that's good that's right I like Uh, I like Phil let me I got a I got a bunch of folk I want to get to I'll come back to you I'll come back to you uh, okay. Let me right. let me get to uh, area code two one four nine zero seven. Are you listening or you got comment? Yes, it's a really good conversation. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to pose a question to the panel. I, I was listening to the sister talk about um, like crime and poverty, but. I just want to ask if we could maybe reconsider that because I don't know that poverty does not, and she may not have said this, poverty does not contribute to crime or being poor doesn't make you a criminal. I totally agree with that because it is definitely choices that we make. However, 
I'm wondering when I hear some of the young men talking and when they are, matter of fact, I was watching a show on uh, TV a few days ago. I think it was called 61 Street or something like that. It's a story about life in Chicago. And it, mm-hmm. it was talking about how when you're back against the wall and it's a young boy and he watching his mama don't have no food or his mama is a, um, the lights is off and, you know, what do they do when they're trying to work, they're trying to get jobs and it just doesn't pay enough and she's doing all she can do. A lot of times that is what pushes, you know, these, these um, young people into crime. It really is survival and that is the result of being poor. So I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that or do you think that it really is just based on, on choice? Um, I would say it's it's based on environment and culture because when my mom and them went to school at HBCUs, HBCUs, CU sometimes didn't have heat, and they would huddle in those classes and get their work done in the cold. There was a code and standard that we had in the past. So you got kids that don't eat or don't have food. There was a community when you couldn't pay your rent. We had rent parties. And so now if I don't have no food, I'm making fun of you because you ain't got no food. I ain't coming together to say, hey, you know what? I ain't got a lot, but, man, I'll share my sandwich with you. And so so there's no community because capitalism has created the division and the niche. And so now that you don't have a coat, but I got three coats in my closet. Hey, man, you know what? I know you may got some pride, but I got a coat that you're willing to have. But if you do it now, and you know he ain't even got no coat. So you don't, so we're not working together anymore. It's not that we have not had much, but my little, I was willing to share with you. I would never... Back in the day, there was nowhere in the world that a family could live next door and be hungry. I'm going to, if I got a chicken, I'm going to cut my chicken in half, and I'm going to share it with my neighbor that ain't got any food. But now, it's, that's a shame they ain't got no food, and nobody's sharing. So I agree with right. you. In those conditions, if there's not community, it will lead to crime. It will lead to violence. Because it's right. every man for himself. So that's I agree. Right. See, and, I, and that's what I was wondering because I, I totally agree with you. And I and I do feel like that's the part. And someone, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the narcissism because that's just that person who's really, and it's the culture now, where, we're, where mm-hmm. we are really literally only focused on ourselves. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's how mm-hmm. out of control the ego is and that there's no balance in it. You know, I was reading the the um, commentary for today's show and when I read through it first thing I went to was oh this the question is what's doing it what's killing the black community to me it's the, the trauma the, the trauma that we have not addressed and we, when we never do that we grow and we grow and the further we grow generation to generation we get further and further away from each other and so now we've, we've developed into this community of people where it's every man for itself and to me that can produce criminals because if a person mm-hmm. I know a young man who really literally walked to work for two hours you know because he was committed to working didn't have the money for transportation and he walked to work two hours and said that that's just his exercise and then walked back home for two hours 
and eventually things just got more challenging and more challenging and he's doing everything that he knew how to do and he had a conversation with his mother like I don't know what what else I could do other than I got to I got to do what my friends is doing I got to hustle uh, we can't keep struggling like this and that, and for a mother to watch her child like almost lose a dream especially when they're actively working at that dream because and discipline not even looking for handouts or anything like that but when we don't have systems in place and you got people out here who judge you because it just so happened to be your turn to go through it you know so they judge you so then what else can you do you it's kill or be killed what, what do you do that's true so anyway i just wanted to run that past um the panel and see what your thoughts were on that thank you and and i would just like to add to that uh, capitalism creates a a, a a social deviant personality configuration in mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. so 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 as we had this conversation we have to recognize that the socialization under capitalism as we move into the 21st century it's 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 a it's a sociopathic personality configuration Look at and, that. and so when so when we talk about <clears throat> narcissism we we send a personality configuration that is being fed through our desire to participate in capitalism right. so uh, so, let's, in context, so i just wanted to add to the conversation that the sister threw out about the question because it's a personality configuration that we're seeing that's manifesting through the socialization of participating in capitalism without having a African cultural orientation or a healthy cultural orientation. Can I can I uh, make a comment? Yes, go ahead. Um, one of the things that um, uh, we should be aware of is that uh, there are big there there is a major transformation going on in American society and in the world. Yes. And there's actually uh, World War III going on between Russia, China, and the United States right now. And yes. just like uh, at the end of the Civil War, uh, when the Confederates were defeated, there was a reconstruction, and the kind of issues that black people had were addressed, like how we could educate ourselves, how we could you know, get land, et cetera, et cetera. Now, it only lasted for a second. Well, at the end of this civil war, and I think it's gonna it's it's uh, it's gonna come to the head um, fairly soon. It looks like Trump uh, Trump and his Republican buddies are going to jail. Um, what one of the things that's gonna happen is that's gonna be the time for black people to come together and start talking about the kind of world they want to live in, how they want things to be, uh, whether you know, and so. So what I'm saying is that there's going to be a third reconstruction. The yes. first reconstruction was in 1865. The second reconstruction began about 1968 uh, and uh, excuse me, 65 and you know 64 and ended in about 68. There's going to be a third reconstruction after uh, these uh, Republican Confederates are defeated, and at that time, that's when uh, uh, the people in the different communities who are disserved. But by the way, what the Civil War is about is it's about property versus people. Capitalism, mm-hmm. the fundamental ideal of capitalism is that property is the, is the sine qua non, right? 
And on the other hand, democracy says, no, people are the most important thing. That's what the Civil War is about. And when these capitalists are defeated, that will be the time for the people to come together and begin to talk about what their Wakanda looks like, what their kind of world looks like. So, yes, yes. You're right. Uh, that's, right. that's going on right now. So. Yeah, I said. That's right. Exactly right. <clears throat> okay, Brother Timothy. Yes, sir. Uh, I like this conversation. I came on at the end of it. I hear you talking to Professor Hughes. You sound so great. And um, there's a problem. Is there? What's going on? Somebody's got a. Somebody's got a text fax phone somehow. Go right ahead, Brother okay. Timothy. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was saying I like this conversation, Professor Pugh. You sound so well. In Philadelphia, you have this incident when you talk about the community is responsible for, I mean, the black community is responsible for its own people, young, old, middle-aged, um, unemployed, with a skill, without a skill, with education, with or without economics and things of that nature. We have a situation that took place a couple of weeks back where uh, an older man, 73-year-old, was out at 3 o'clock in the morning, and he sees a 14-year-old one, a 14-year-old little girl and a 14-year-old little boy and a 10-year-old. He asked them, what are you doing at this time of night? And what they did was they attacked him. Yeah. And unfortunately killed the man. They killed the man. So everybody says, where were the parents? Why were the children out that late? What was he doing out that late? A 73-year-old man should be able to come in out of his house anytime he wants. The man was killed. Now, the, the DA we have, they say he's liberal. He's the type of guy he just doesn't want anybody to get locked up. He's one of the best days we have ever had. They call him a, a liberal and they don't like him. Well, he lets them out. The children get out of incarceration in jail and go to the relatives of the man who they killed and arresting the people. So this type of behavior, they get out of jail, okay? And they're trying to charge this 14-year-old girl and this 14-year-old boy with an Adele crime, because in Pennsylvania, if you do an Adele crime, your child is an adult. So my I'm, my answer, is, my question to you is, uh, is this thing is out of How do we handle this? They get out of jail. Everybody feels sorry for them. Oh, somebody should have had them. What schools did they go to? Who raised them? They get out of jail and try to attack the, the, uh, the, the man who they killed. Relatives are going to the houses. Yep. That's true. Okay. Uh, Sister Benita, you want to answer that? Yes. Um, I think the brother is asking a question that really hits home is how do we handle the the, the um, abnormal behavior that is happening in our community? And the reality is, is that the communities that are exhibiting these type of behaviors have been left to themselves. Right. My question would be, everybody's on this phone, where do you live? Who do your children play with? Who do you associate with? We have a community of people literally that have been forgotten and that have been left to, to their own devices, and so, but what happens? I mean, I understand we want better 
We say we want a better life for our children, so we get our jobs, we move out of the hood, we move into the suburbs, fight with the white folks because they prejudice, but we want our kids in quote-unquote good school. And so it's, it's, we are divided in that we want to talk about the problem, but we ain't trying to live around the problem. And so if there are no examples, if that child doesn't see a family that's being modeled, doesn't see a mother and a father, doesn't see kids doing their homework, they don't have any reference point. All they know is what they know. And so if we, when we start dealing with kids like this, it's been my experience that game no net game, but real no real. And one of the things that I know about certain communities is this. They know when you care about them and they know if you're real. They don't, last thing our, these communities need is people feeling sorry for them and all that good stuff. Can I go in there and look you dead in the eye and see your potential? Or do I just see a wild, delinquent child? Or do I see a child that has potential that I'm not afraid of? And so... I've worked in schools where teachers are getting beat up literally by the children in elementary school, broke arms, crazy stuff, because they don't want to uh, lose their pensions and all this kind of stuff. Well, see, I made up my mind, uh, you come after me, it's on. I ain't I ain't thinking about uh, <laughs> rules and regs and proceeds. You come after me because the kids can smell the fear. So when you get into these environments and you're afraid, these kids will eat you alive. So That's we're true. in our suburbs. We're in our suburbs, and then we try to go in and reach this community. And this community, like, hmm, they don't belong here. I don't know them. And so there's yeah. a there's a divide in that we care, but we're no longer connected to the community. So I think that's the challenge. Can I say something else? Can I say something else, Doctor Rogers? Real Dr. quick, Rogers. real quick, brother Timothy. You okay, only got a few I'm minutes. Real quick. Okay. But, miss, here's the opposite, the flip side of it. The guy that they murdered, they found out that he was in the first resurrection and a Muslim. So the Muslim minister wants to contact the family because now they know there'd be some type of repercussions. I'm gonna say it again. That guy who they killed, they didn't know who they killed was in the Nation of Islam in the 60s and 70s. Now, wow. it's going to be some type of repercussion. See, you mm. never know who you hurt when you're going to do something to. Right. Mm. I agree. I hear you. Okay, Brother Phil, real quickly, and I need to get uh, Sister Benita to wrap it up, uh, so go right ahead. You wanted to say something. No, uh, I was just going to uh, tap into what... Uh, um, the guest was talking about with the children going to school or have you and um, I'm, I'm, the only thing I was going to say is that we have to prepare our children to go into these schools and pre prepare them to come out with an education versus an indoctrination and that's that's just our job you know I, I, I mean um, you look at you look at your grandson um Dr. Oz, when he first came, look, look, look how how well he came out, and then as well as you know, as my 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 boys would have you, and then you always talk about Saturday schools. There's a lot of things that we we talk to those children about. So.
so they would know how to go into these white institutions and come out and be competitive right. to these other elite and Ivy League and just prestigious type schools. I mean, we raise children that to do that. And it's our it's our job to prepare our children to go into these to to go into these schools that are that are not necessarily designed for them and to come out ahead of the game. That that's that, that's all I want to put on. Brilliant. Okay, sister Benita, uh you want to wrap it up for us? Um, I, well, I'm, I'd like for Brother Roan to wrap it up, and I, I want to say this about Brother Roan, if he would wrap this up for me, is that I, that I have such respect for is that uh, Brother Roan lives in the community. The kids see him. They speak to him. He's there. He's boots on the ground. And so we need more of that, that our community recognizes us when we come in there and they will have a different level of respect for us and know that we really love and care. So I, I'd like for him to close it out if he wouldn't mind. I thank you, Sister Benita. Uh, the, the point the brother made is, is reflective of our social dysfunction, right? And we need a national agenda, right? We need a, an agenda that really speaks to what our needs are. So we need a national needs assessment for our people, right? in the areas of politics, economics, health, wellness, fitness, nutrition, health disparities, and culture, right, with a comprehensive education about how we're going to teach, train, and develop our next generation to prepare to compete in this country. In order to do that, we have to organize ourselves, and we need great leadership. We need leadership from our elders, and we need leadership from every level of community that we have where we're collectively working together, and that's the only way we're going to do it. Beautiful. Brother Ron, you want to tell them about what you're doing, some things you're doing? Yes, I'm, I am doing the National African American Empowerment Association. That is to empower African Americans, a descendant of American slavery, to empower ourselves to heal and recover and to, uh, I would say, graduate to the place that we've come from, right, to understand our culture and our heritage and to resurrect ourselves through community healing through collaborations and through working together. And that's the only way we're going to do it, right? It won't be class. It won't be education. It has to be all of us working together. All hands on deck. we got to do it. And so we have to empower each other. We have to work to do that uh, one day at a time. Right. Uh, tell them a little bit about your program that comes on Saturday. Okay. Yeah, Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, join the conversation. We're working toward going to every city and every town where African Americans are and putting together a positive peace concept program that really works on one, finding that inner peace first, and then working toward uh, helping our people to recover and heal wherever we are. And we got to do that. And we got to learn how to love ourselves again, right where we are. Right. Beautiful. 2 p.m. Saturday, Dr. Rogers, Dr. Bruce, and Brother George, and Sister Benita, and many more have uh, joined this network of trying to continue to educate our people. And so David Walker's appeal and my appeal is let's work together to do that. Martin Luther King had a dream. Marvin Rohn has a beautiful. vision for change for African-American empowerment. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Brother Alfonso, you want to say some closing thoughts? We've got about two or three minutes left. We can... um, it's always a pleasure once again to be amongst y'all family and uh, do this, this do a critical analysis of what we're seeing 
and, and hopefully once again we continue to come up with solution focused um, conversations and, and and start I mean many of us are already working collectively together so once again thank y'all for sharing this space with me great beautiful Reverend Kirk I appreciate you so much uh, thank you so much for coming on uh, keep up the good yeah. work in other words bottom line keep on keeping on uh, and, I, and very clearly, but wrong, you do the same because you're doing a wonderful job. Young man out of Richmond, absolutely, Virginia. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, yeah. Dr. Rogers. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Reverend Kirk. Thank you so much. Did someone say they had another question? No, okay. All right, so all of you, I appreciate your uh, patience tonight. And we discuss, we're trying to we put out our appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we told you where the problem, told you what we need to do. Uh, now it's up to us to do it, make it happen. Uh, the famous words I like to say from Brother Ray Charles, now you got to make it do what it do, baby. <laughs> make it do. <laughs> Let's go with it. Let's go with it. Make it, make it do what it do. <laughs> All right. Good night, folks. We'll see you next Tuesday. We'll be here uh, right here, same time, same station. Have a good week, folks. Stay cool. Stay Thank cool you. now. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Take care. Peace and blessings. Yes. Peace and blessings.